Good morning, everyone. And I know it's the day after Christmas, but it just still feels appropriate for me to say Merry Christmas to all of you. I hope that your day yesterday was joyful and wonderful, and I'm glad to see those. You might be a little tired, but I'm glad you made it out to worship the Lord this morning. That is a wonderful thing. And so whether you're here in person or on the live stream, we welcome you this morning to Lake Oconee Presbyterian Church. My name is Jeff Birch. It's my privilege to welcome you this morning. If you're visiting with us, we offer a warm welcome. We hope you picked up uh, our goodie bag out front that one of the ushers or deacons handed you that. Allows you the opportunity to uh, get some good stuff and get to know us a little bit. I will remind all of you, if you're on the end of the, an aisle, to get that friendship pad started and pass that down the aisle so we have the opportunity, if you're led, for us to get to know you a little bit. A uh, couple of brief announcements before we enter into worship. Uh, enjoy these beautiful direct, uh, decorations for what may be 24 more hours. We need a crew here. Anybody who can help with the deacons in terms of taking them down, putting them away, storing them for another year. They will be gathering tomorrow morning at 10 o'clock, and so we encourage you uh, to do that. Immediately after today's service, Evie and I are going to take a little vacation. We're going to go see her mother in Myrtle Beach and then uh, visit with our son as well. Uh, Dr. David Todd will be the guest preacher next Sunday morning. Uh, David is uh, an area director for Evangelism Explosion and a member of Central Georgia Presbytery. And I will be back in the office on Thursday, January 6th, ready to go with our New Beginnings 2022. And so we have some of the key dates uh, in your bulletin, the reopening of Sunday School on January 16th. Uh, on that morning as well, we'll be installing the new 2022 Women's Council. There'll be a luncheon for visitors after that service. Then on the 23rd, we have our officer elections. And you have an insert in your bulletin this morning. Uh, feel free to take that home. That gives you just some brief biographical information on the men who are standing before you. As members of the church, you have the right to elect your leaders, your deacons, your elders. And so uh, that's part of Presbyterian government. Uh, and so you'll see brief biographical information on the men up for elder and deacon. And then on the 30th will be the installation of those officers. So a lot's going on in terms of things. Just note that the church office is closed tomorrow, and so the office will reopen on Tuesday the 28th, so if you need Yvonne or anything, Tuesday morning is the time in terms of that. So we're grateful to come together and worship this morning, and so now as the prelude is played, let's prepare our hearts to lift up and exalt our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ.
call to worship this morning comes from Psalm 96, verses 10 through 13. Say among the nations, the Lord reigns. Yes, the world is established, it shall never be moved. He will judge the peoples with equity. Let the heavens be glad and let the earth rejoice. Let the sea roar and all that fills it. Let the field exult and everything in it. Then shall all the trees of the forest sing for joy before the Lord, for he comes. He comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples in his faithfulness. Father, I'm always struck reading that particular psalm at the creation, basically throwing a party because of the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. How the ideal became real and every category was shattered when the word became flesh and made his dwelling amongst us. Lord, we are here to praise you this morning. We are here to celebrate your grace and we invoke your presence that we would respond to you by worshiping you in spirit and in truth. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Friends, let's stand and sing together, Joy to the World. say this at Easter time, I'm going to say it at Christmas time as well. Why do we sing these songs only when it's seasonal? I do believe the doctrine in that particular song, he rules the world with truth and grace, is still applicable in the middle of summer. I think he will still be in charge ruling the world with truth and grace on the 4th of July. Anybody agree with me on that one? There we go. See, I amen, that's what I like. I feel the same way about our scripture reading this morning. Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 through 25, the birth of Jesus Christ. And again, it's in the Bible all year long. So yes, we read it at Christmas time, but uh, I would encourage you to read it more than just at Christmas time. So friends, hear the word of the Lord from Matthew chapter 1. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother, Mary, had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, 
Do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. I love the fact that the heart of the Christmas story is that he will be called Emmanuel. God with us. It means no matter what it is we are going through, no matter what we're struggling with, whether it be isolation or loneliness or health issue or whatever it might be, if we're a believer in Jesus, we're not alone. We are never abandoned. Praise the Lord, Emmanuel, God with us. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of his word. And let's stand and sing together, Away in a Manger. go to the Lord now in a time of prayer, and we will together pray the prayer that our Lord and Savior taught us to pray, the Lord's Prayer, and then I will lead us in a brief pastoral prayer. Let us pray together. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. You alone are the Lord. You alone are holy. You alone are the King of kings. Lord, we praise you. Fully God and fully man, born of the Virgin Mary, you came and every condition known to man you underwent, you took upon yourself. You know full well everything that we go through. Lord, we could spend a lifetime plumbing the depths of the mystery of the incarnation. But I pray, our Father, that you would increase our faith, that you would cause us to wonder at the miracle of the incarnation, the wonder of it all, the fact that you did not ask us to come to you, but instead you came to us. Lord, we praise you for the birth of Jesus Christ, and we praise you for his life and his death and his resurrection and ascension into glory. Thank you for the story 
of the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. Father, as we pray this day, we recognize that for many, Christmas may be a joyous time. For others, it's a time filled with tension, loneliness, a time where the ravages of life still go on. People are hurting and in need of comfort. I think of any in our midst, Father, who are suffering, who are lonely, who are going through uncertain times. We ask, Father, that you would be with them and that you would comfort them. In our community, we pray for the family of Adarius Cummings, young man who was killed last week, and we ask your comfort to be with his family. We can't make sense of tragedies like this, but we ask, Father, that you would come, that you would be Emmanuel, God with us to that particular family, and teach us to love. Father, as we move into 2022, we pray for the ministries of the church, the reopening of Sunday school, the women's ministry. We pray for our election of officers. We pray, Father, for anyone who's coming into the church, that they would sense a welcome and a hospitality about us. Lord, we think of home fellowship groups and women's Bible studies and men's Bible studies. We pray for grief share as they will be beginning again. Lord, in all of these things, we ask that your name be exalted, that you be glorified, that we would be a Christ-centered, gospel-centered church, that in all of these things, we would reflect a gospel culture. I think of the promise, light has come into the darkness, and the darkness has not been able to overcome it. Lord, may we as your people reflect that light. We thank you for this opportunity to worship, this opportunity to abide with you and to commune with you. And we praise you in the glorious name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and our Savior. Amen.
Let's go to the Lord in a time of prayer. Father, as we open your word this morning, we thank you that you have given your word to us because you love us. You want us to know you. It's another way that you were vulnerable, just like you cracked open the door of the world and in vulnerability came to this earth. You've also revealed your heart. You've revealed who you are. You've revealed your mission. You've revealed your agenda, what you're all about. You allow us to get to know you in and through your word, through your speech to us. So may we receive this as you're speaking to us. And we, may we recognize your word. Father, thank you. Holy Spirit, teach us. May your word, which you promise will not return void or empty, accomplish its purpose. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. If you have Bibles, I would invite you to turn to Isaiah chapter 9. You know, we've been going through this series, uh, what I've called the the prophecies of Isaiah, hope according to Isaiah. And I know we've been working our way through largely passages from Isaiah 40 up through Isaiah 62. We're going backwards a little bit. Okay, we're looking at Isaiah chapter 9 this morning, specifically verses 1 through 7. And we're doing so because it is a prophecy of really what would be fulfilled in the birth of Jesus Christ. Very famous passage, to us a son is given, to us a child is born, and the government will be on his shoulders. So friends, let's turn our hearts to the word of God as we look at Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1 through 7. But there will be no more gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, but in the latter time he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God. Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Well, I remember when Evie and I found out that Evie was pregnant with Joel. I remember that day, and I remember how excited we were. And much of our conversation from that time forth, I think you could guess it was, what are we going to name this child? Now, we didn't go in and ask to know the gender of the baby. We were kind of, we're going to be surprised. So we were picking names. We were kind of trying to decide what, what to name the baby. Now, you need to know something about Evie at this point in time. She was an elementary school teacher, okay? So she had classrooms filled with 30 kids with all sorts of names. And she had been teaching for many years at this point. So classroom upon classroom upon classroom of children's names. So every time I would suggest a name, and of course, you've gotten to know me. I mean, I could come up with some kind of, you know, like I was like, Evie. We need to name him Buck if he's a boy. Doesn't that just sound right? Buck Birch. In, in my mind, I was like, football linebacker. Maybe I could prophesy, University of Georgia, let's go. Or, and she'd look at me and she'd go, you've got to be kidding. Then I would be, and I was. And then I would be serious and I would suggest a name and she would know, oh no, no third row back there, nope. I know what they were like. We're not, we're not doing that. 
until we settled on the name Joel Andrew Birch. It just had a ring to it. And so our son was born. Now, why is naming, you know, they come out, I don't know if they did this back then, but they come out now with books. These are the, these are the names for children for 2021. These are the names for children. So is a name that different in 2021 than it was in 19-whatever? I'm not sure. But see, a name is significant because a name indicates your character, your identity, who you are or who you will become. In the ancient Near Eastern world, when a name was given, the indication was for that child to live into his name, to become his name. Now, this is a famous passage. A lot of preachers preach on it in terms of looking at what to name the baby. I even titled the sermon, What to Name the Baby. And we'll get to those royal throne titles. That'll be a part of the sermon, but not the whole of the sermon. We've been talking a lot about this mysterious figure throughout this series known as the suffering servant. Isaiah 9 hasn't introduced him yet. Waiting for Isaiah 42 for that. But this suffering servant will be the means by which triumphing through weakness by which we are reconciled to God. This baby, this wonderful counselor, this mighty God, this everlasting father, this prince of peace is the means through which we have peace with God and we're reconciled with God. But I want us to focus on another aspect of this this morning, and that is, okay, you're reconciled with God. You have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. You know that upon death, you go into heaven, living eternal life. But what difference does it make in our life in the here and now, in the present? Francis Schaeffer wrote a book years and years ago, How Then Shall We Now Live? I want us to focus on that. And Isaiah focuses a lot on that. He talks about how we're seizing the jubilee. We are coming alongside, not despising the poor. A lot of things about his mission and agenda, but I want to focus on one other aspect of the Christian life, and that is knowing Jesus. Communion with Jesus. The evangelist John, what does he call it? John 15, he talks about abiding with Jesus. I'm the vine, you are the branches. If anyone abides in me and me and him, you will bear much fruit. Sounds like our present life, doesn't it? What does it mean? What does it look like to abide with Jesus? Let me illustrate it this way. When we pray, as I did just a few moments ago, we close our prayers, don't we, with, the with in the name of Jesus. Now, we've never really gone before in the wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting Father, Prince of Peace of Jesus, have we? We just kind of shorthand it, and we go, in the name of Jesus. Now, have you ever thought what that means anyway? Or do we just kind of use it as a magic formula? Or you're praying, and you're kind of going, oh, I'm getting tired, I don't know what else to say. In the name of Jesus, amen. Or you could do like I do, and we have our little dog, Gracie. You've seen Gracie this week, I think, right? Heard about Gracie? You know, Gracie knows when I pray at dinner time because she gets, while Evie and I are trying to eat, we give her a little snack, and she knows as soon as I go, in Jesus' name, amen, she looks up. It's cookie time. Dad just said, in Jesus' name, amen, I get a cookie. But what does it mean to use the phrase in the... See, I'm challenging, I know it's the day after Christmas, I know we're all tired, I know I'm a little tired, but I'm challenging us to think in the Christian life a little bit. What does it mean to pray in the name of Jesus? One of my favorite writers, Eugene Peterson, has a tremendous insight on what it means to pray in the name of Jesus. He writes, Jesus is inviting us into his entire life, a life of intimate personal relationship in which his words became flesh, not in general, but in a local and present and particular way in all the various circumstances that make up everyday living. Name is an entrance into the entire world that is inhabited by and realized in a named person in a named place. 
When we pray in the name of Jesus, we are entering into union with Christ. We are entering into his entire life, his entire world. So praying in the name of Jesus requires knowing the name of Jesus, knowing who he is, how he treated people, what was he about, what did he come to do. To use another phrase of Eugene Peterson, it means keeping company with Jesus. Keeping company with the one who is Emmanuel, God with us. That's why it's so important to know the word became flesh. And again, as Eugene Peterson says, and entered into our neighborhood. He left his comfort zone, left his familiarity, left heaven to come to earth, to dwell in the darkness, to dwell in the muck and mire and in the mess of our lives. I know we show up on Sunday morning and we look very good. We get all sharpened and brightened up, but let's be honest, our lives are a mess underneath. You know, I want to know how often somebody comes up to you and says, hi, how are you? How is your week going? And you go, I was an insecure, anxious mess this week. <laughs> we probably should do more of that because Jesus is Emmanuel, God with us, and he certainly knows it and he loves and he draws near, and he's attracted to it. So what does it mean to know Jesus? What does it mean to commune or abide with Jesus? This aspect of the Christian life. Let's look at it from three perspectives. First, our need to know Jesus. Secondly, the promise of knowing Jesus. And thirdly, the reality of knowing Jesus. If you want to shorthand it in your notes, need, promise, reality. See, I try to give you short outlines. I knew the day after Christmas we'd be a little tired. Okay? Our need to know Jesus is seen in the context of this particular passage. Isaiah is writing to a people who are undergoing, let's give you a little historical context. The people are going, undergoing hardship at the hands of their political enemies, namely the Assyrians. That's why when Isaiah mentions in, first one, in verse 1 the lands of Zebulun and the lands of Naphtali, those are two areas of the northern kingdom of Israel, located in such a place that when Assyria would invade, they were the first to get it. So this is part of the darkness. And in the passage immediately preceding the one we read is a stark description of the mood of the times. Listen to this. It says, this is the end of chapter 8, verses 21 and 22, distressed and hungry. Okay, you know when you start out something like that, it's not in a good place, right? How often do we go, how do you, you know, Evie will ask me, how are you feeling today? How was, your, how was your day? I'm distressed and I'm hungry. She probably knows, uh-oh, bad mood. Enter into the emotional tone here. Distressed and hungry, they will roam through the land. When they are famished, they will become enraged. This shouldn't surprise anyone. How do you act when you're hungry? How do you act when you're famished? Puts us in a bad mood, doesn't it? What if you're famished and hungry for relationship? You're lonely, you're doubtful, you're isolated, you're going through difficult, difficult times, you're going, when will this end? These are things that create chaos in our soul. And looking upward, they curse their king and they curse God. Then they look towards the earth for an answer, and they see only distress and darkness and fearful gloom and they will be thrust into utter darkness. Downer of a passage, isn't it? But that's the mood into which Isaiah prophesies, but there will be no more gloom for her who was in anguish. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness on them, the light has shone. What is he showing? He's showing our need for hope. And their hope, the need is seen in this mood. Here they are distressed and hungry. They're roaming through the land. They're wanderers. When they look for help, they could find none. They look upward only to curse God and the king. They look downward to the earth. There's no, salute, there's no government program that's going to help them. The mood was one of darkness, death, distress, helplessness, hopelessness, powerlessness, anguish. And into that, God speaks. Into that. He says, but there will be no more gloom 
See, you need to recognize everyone needs hope. Every human being needs hope. And hope is not like what we think in our English language. I've, I know I've said this to you before. Okay, we think of hope, and we think it's much more like wishful thinking. Okay, I hope Georgia beats Michigan later this week. Nicole is going right now. I hope the Eagles beat the football team later on this evening. I hope we have a fun time with my mother-in-law this week and with our son. All of those things are good things. We want them to happen. But biblical hope is a certainty. It's a guarantee. One commentator puts it this way. Biblical hope is the future is written as something which has already happened, for it belongs to the prophetic consciousness of men like Isaiah to cast themselves forward in time and then look back on the mighty acts of God, saying to us, look forward to it. It is certain. He has, it is as if he has already done it. Isaiah is calling the people of God to live with the eyes of faith. And the eye of faith looks at the reality of life. It doesn't minimize or deny the pain. It looks at the pain. It looks at the distress and affirms that real though it is, it is not real reality. It is temporary for the believer in Christ. You need a hope to be able to do this. Dan Allender is one of my favorite writers on this particular topic. He wrote a book years ago called The Healing Path. And he says in this book, he says, hope envisions rebuilding a life that has even more purpose and meaning than existed before the lost. Hope is the dream of shalom, the anticipation of joy that courses through us and prompts us to rise and rebuild, to envision and risk for what is not yet. Hope takes the experience of loss and powerlessness and uses it as the raw material for writing a new and unexpected story. Hope is honest. It doesn't deny the loss. It doesn't deny the powerlessness or the pain. Hope doesn't deny this, but as Allender says, hope has vision. Hope is that believed-in future that empowers you to live in the present. It envisions rebuilding a life that has even more purpose and more meaning than existed before the loss. And friends, that's why hope is scary. It's scary to dream. It's scary to envision because you do understand, we understand intuitively there may be more loss. But hope has the rock-solid trust in God and in that certainty of the future that allows us to envision, to dream, and to risk. That's the first point. We all need hope. Second, the promise of knowing Jesus. Look at verse 2. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. To those feeling hopeless and helpless, Isaiah encourages them with these words. This is a summary of the promise of hope. Former professor at Westminster Seminary, where I went to seminary, was a man by the name of E.J. Young, and he wrote a commentary on the book of Isaiah and on this passage. And he writes this of this. He says, The whole work of Christ and all the blessings which he brings may be characterized by this one word, light. See, light here points to a creative work of God. The darkness is such that only a creative work of God, an act of God alone, can penetrate the darkness. Only God's action can bring light and reverse the darkness. And that is exactly what God promises to do. The promise of knowing Jesus means knowing him as creator and as savior. God is always a creating, saving God. Second, look at how comprehensive God's program of salvation is. Again, Dr. Young says this salvation is in its widest sense a complete reversal of their previous condition. He says two words are used to describe this reversal of their previous condition, light and joy. Notice the text. A great light has dawned, and you have increased its joy. See, light and joy make up the promise of hope given to the people of God. And in verses 3 to 5, we see these experiences of light and joy that are related here. 
First of all, you've got the universal scope of the promise. You have multiplied the nation. Verse 3 says you have multiplied, you've enlarged the nation. You need to understand that for someone reading this in the ancient near world, this would allude to them, this would hearken back to them to Genesis chapter 12 and the covenant promise to Abraham. Why it's so important to know the whole story of God. Scripture is always interpreting Scripture, and Scripture is always alluding to Scripture. See, in Genesis chapter 12, God makes a promise to Abraham, and the promise is that he would be a great nation, that all the nations of the earth would be blessed through him. Now, notice where the hope is coming from in Isaiah 9. He's talking about Galilee of the nations. That's a reference to the Gentiles, and this in turn increases their joy. The nation is increasing. The nation is multiplying. The gospel is for nations. The gospel is for everyone. Hope for all people. Let's try to be real practical about this. See, one practical application of knowing that you're a sinner saved by grace, knowing that you're an insecure mess that Jesus loves and died for, is that you come to realize that no one is outside the reach of grace. There is no one that's so far lost, no one that is so far beyond the pale that God's grace can't reach them. Don't you dare be sitting here and say, God could never save me. You don't know my life. You don't know what I've done in the past. You don't know what I... There is no one that the grace of God cannot reach. Grace can reach anyone, regardless of background, regardless of performance, regardless of history, regardless of failures, regardless of your shame, regardless of status. We need to learn to plunge our failures into the heart of God, which is a heart of grace. The second aspect of this comprehensive promise of hope is freedom or liberation. In verses 4 and 5, we read about Midian's defeat. What is that referring to? You've shattered the yoke that burdens them, the bar across their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor. Well, there's at least two historical references in this verse. The first is the Exodus, the preeminent act, the paradigm of God's salvation, delivering and freeing his people from slavery at the hands of the Egyptians. The second reference, though, is to Judges. In Judges chapters 6 through 8, you've got the defeat of Midian at the hands of a savior a judge by the name of Gideon. Gideon was the deliverer, the human instrument by which the people were freed. And the victory was an act of God excluding all human glory. That's the promise of salvation. It brings freedom. It brings liberation. It brings hope. How's all this going to occur? Somebody going to ride in on a white horse? Somebody's going to come in with all sorts of power and majesty and take over and throw out the enemies? No. Look at the reality of knowing Jesus and feel the shock. Feel the surprise of the words of verse 6, for to us a child is born. To us a son is given. And the government, that means the rule the reign, the kingship, will be on his shoulders. The shoulders of a child. The shoulders of a baby. Leading in weakness, leading in humility, leading by giving power away. Not leading by triumph, not leading by might, not leading by I'm the biggest, baddest, and I'm going to defeat all of you, but I'm a child. There's a lot of practical application in this. We think we're going to influence people. Do you think you're going to influence people by your power or by your humility? Are you going to influence people by showing them how much you know or by how well you can listen to them? How much you can enter their world and tangibly care for them? See, the emphasis here falls on not what the child would do, but on just the fact of who he is, his birth. Unto us a son is gone, unto us a child is born. Tim Keller says his birth is an earth-shattering event, category-smashing, paradigm-busting. It is the ideal becoming real, 
the general becoming particular, and in his coming, all that results in his coming is at once secured. Why? Because he puts it all on his shoulders. And do you know what that means? Guess whose shoulders it's not on. It is not on your shoulders. Friends, the pressure's off. Take it off of your shoulders. And excuse me for a second because I'm preaching to myself here. You know how much I put the pressure on myself? I've got to be better. I've got to preach better. I've got to do better. I've got to... The pressure's off. Why? Because the government, the rule, the re- who's in charge is on the child's shoulders. The yoke of the burden has been removed from us. That ought to make us light and free. Anybody feeling light and free? Now look at even more what he did. Because now, see, and I gave you all this. This is the context of what to name the baby. And this is the child that we're communing with. Because these titles give us a good glimpse of who he is. First, he's a wonderful counselor. The idea of wonder in who he is is depicted here. And what does a counselor do? A counselor leads. A counselor guides. Yes, a counselor will expose what's going on in your heart, what's going on in your life. And Jesus is a wonderful counselor. And you can't have a relationship with him if he is not exposing you and exposing to you some of the recesses of your heart. But no, he will do it in wonder. He will do it tenderly. A bruised reed he shall not break. A smoldering wick he will never snuff out. This is where all the Psalms, if you pray through the Psalms, it talks about walking in his ways. The psalmist will always say, teach us his ways. Why? Because he's a wonderful counselor. His ways are the ways, we haven't gotten to it yet, but his ways are the ways of peace. His ways are the ways of shalom. His ways are the ways we were designed for. This is talking about his excellence, his wisdom. The decisions of a king make or break a kingdom. A kingdom is designed to be have an everlasting wisdom. And this baby is a wonderful counselor. More than that, this, counsel, this baby is a mighty warrior. This is amazing. The child is a warrior. He is mighty in battle, fighting for his people, defeating his and their foes. This emphasizes the greatness and majesty, the power and the omnipotence, the greatness. And it's something how Isaiah is bringing out both the humanity and the divinity of the child here. He's bringing out how powerful and strong he is, and yet how human he is. I think, friends, we don't have a difficult time with the power and majesty. Sometimes we do have an issue with the humanity. Sometimes I think we don't emphasize enough. The baby Jesus cried and threw up on his mother. Mary lived with the stench. Come on, moms, you remember those days, right? Jesus was fully human. Don't dishonor Jesus by denying his humanity. And we need his humanity because he's Emmanuel, God with us. You need his humanity to understand your anxiety and your insecurity and your failures and your temptations. You need his humanity so you can have a very real and personal hope. And you need him to be a mighty God so that he can fight your battles for you. He can fight your anxiety with and for you. The Messiah is both human and God, son of David and son of God. And he's also everlasting father. As a father, this points to his concern for the helpless, the orphan, the outsider, the marginal, It also points to the loving, caring discipline that he will give to his children. He trains us. He provides for us. This this almost looks at the future image of the Lord as good shepherd. The good shepherd in whom we are secure because the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep, which leads to his last royal title, that of Prince of Peace. This is the fulfillment, the shalom, the well-being, 
the harmony that we all seek. This is life as it was designed and created to be. We are not just seeking to go to heaven when we die. We are seeking shalom, paradise at every level of existence. This is why our future is new heavens and new earth, spiritual and physical and social and psychological and emotional and relational and cultural. It is wellness and wholeness and integration and everything coming together with God being over all, in all and over all. And we need to understand for this peace to be true peace, to be true shalom, this is, a, this is not a truce. This is not a cessation of hostilities. The cause of the warfare must be removed. And what was the cause of the hostility, enmity, the warfare? It was our sin. Our sin is what caused hostility between us and God. And the enmity which existed between God and man must be removed. And friends, that is exactly what Jesus did on the cross. That's why the mission of Jesus was to die, to satisfy the demands of divine justice. And in satisfying the demands of divine justice, he removed the enmity which was between God and us. We were enemies, and now that the cause of that enmity has been satisfied, we are free to be friends. There is nothing hindering us, nothing hindering God to look upon us and say, you are my friends. I will let you in to my heart. I will share with you my business. I will be vulnerable with you. That's the God we're communing with. That's the God we're abiding in. God can extend the gift of peace to us. Let me close with another quote by Dan Allender. Again, he puts it so well. He says, hope focuses, we've been talking about hope. Hope focuses not on circumstances, but on Christ's coming and the redemption of our character. If my hope is centered on getting a new job, being healed from an illness, then I've given my heart to what is tangible and material. My heart will never become any bigger than that in which or, or in whom I hope. But when my hope is centered on the coming redemption, I begin to take on his glory. As I become more and more molded by the future, the now becomes more, both more bitter and sweet. Bitter in that it is not enough, sweet in its foretaste of what lies ahead. Let's pray. Thank you for this child and for this son who has guaranteed our future, who has brought a piece of our future into the present. May this empower us and embolden us as we live communing and abiding in you. Lord Jesus, we love you and we thank you for your coming to earth. For to us, a child has been born. To us, a son is given. And the government, the rule, the reign, everything is on his shoulders. Oh, may we take it off our own. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together and sing our closing hymn.
friends, now receive the Lord's benediction. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope. Amen.